Turn your Bibles this morning to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 10. Nehemiah chapter 10. We're a few weeks away from wrapping Nehemiah up. Um, I've enjoyed our time in the book and uh, am looking forward to uh, finishing it with you. And we are really heading into kind of, um, while it's at the end of the book, there's really climactic moments coming in Nehemiah. And there's, frankly, what would appear to be some level of discouragement that's going to arrive. While I was talking to my children recently or to my family about what to preach next, uh, where we'll be headed next, and one of my children said, uh, Judges, I think you should preach Judges. Because they've been reading in the book of Judges in their devotions. And I said, I don't know that I have a few months of Judges in me. Um, I, I, I don't know. Judges is a rough book. Um, very difficult because Judges ends with the concept uh, every man does that which is right in his own eyes. Judges 2025 is the theme key verse. And Judges really leaves you hungry that we need a king. We need to be ruled. Um, and so it leaves in a very dark, dark place, quite honestly. If you were to make Judges into uh, a modern-day movie, R would be the minimum rating. It, it's just horrific. Well, it's interesting because Nehemiah um, is all about community. And it leaves us, it will leave us at the end of the book here with a longing for a better community with an understanding that unless God has done a work in every person's heart who's a part of that community, uh, that it's just a ticking time bomb before it all unravels anyway. That it has to be a redeemed community. And it would leave you hungering and saying, if this doesn't work, if rebuilding walls and rebuilding temple and restoring worship and doing all these, if that's not enough, what else can there be? And it really is all pointing ahead. All of it is pointing forward. And this morning... Uh, forms a key part of that kind of mindset, that kind of growing, increasing awareness that there has to be something more. And it's all about this group of people in the land get together. It's not everybody, uh, but a group of people get together, and they kind of make a covenant to keep the covenant. Uh, God had set covenants with them. You have a number of covenants throughout the Bible. You have the Adamic covenant with Adam. You have the Mosaic covenant. You have the Noahic covenant uh, you have the Abrahamic covenant. You've got all these covenants, and these are commitments between God and humanity where he will be their God and they will be his people. And the children of Israel had violated particularly the Mosaic covenant. They had violated the law in key ways, and so God had sent them into captivity. Well, now they've come back out of captivity, and you have a group of people saying, we want to go back to that. We've, we've heard the word, and we've celebrated these festivals in the seventh month. We've been broken about it, and uh, even last week we saw how in their brokenness and their repentance, they're starting to see what it, where is my place in the bigger picture. Side note, rabbit trail, if you want a great example of what we were talking about last week of understanding your story in the big story, um, there's a podcast that Paul Tripp has called The Connecting Podcast. He recently interviewed Dave Harvey, who's a pastor, and, and Dave Harvey tells his story in three chapters. Uh, and it would be a great, I think it'd be a blessing to you, but it's that kind of mindset. Where do I fit in to the big picture? And it drives then to this group of people that says, we want to be God's people. We, we want him to be our God. We want to be his people. We want to make this covenant with him so that we're on the same page. It's been almost 100 years since they rebuilt the temple. 
the it's been a few months at least six seven months perhaps since they've rebuilt the walls they've had these festivals and now they want to make this commitment this covenant with god if you go to just to the end of nehemiah chapter 9 verse 38 there it's intended as a bridge verse to lead us into chapter 10 but it says this because of all this we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes our levites and our priests in the opening then of chapter 10 is 27 verses of the names i'm not going to read all those names this morning um for sake of time and and uh i humor you enough um we no need for you to be amused at my stumbling over some difficult names this morning, but there are 27 verses. I do want you to understand at least the groupings, though, of these verses. Why, why are these names listed? And uh, by explaining the groupings, I think that will help us a little bit. Uh, first name given is Nehemiah. Obviously, he's the political leader. This then followed by the names of the priests who signed this covenant through verse 8. Part of the impact of the names is it's a way of saying not all of them signed. Not all of them were agreeing to this. And so by them putting their name on it, these guys are saying we own it. Uh, I don't have any problem lining up with this person. And so then it's followed by the names of the Levites and their brothers. That extends down through verse 13. Then you have the leaders of the people from verses 14 through verse 27. Those are uh, like political leaders, localized leaders in Jerusalem and the surrounding regions. Now, all of these folks are important, and they're all leaders. And so because they're leaders, they represent others that are there under them and the others that are present. But it's a way of saying, mark these guys down. They are committed to this. But verse 28, verse 28 makes it clear it's not just about the leaders. And so verse 28 of Nehemiah chapter 10, it says this, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his rules and his statutes. Four things you want to understand about verse 28. First of all, it lists out others. Other people are going to serve in the temple. It's a way of saying that all of those who are going to be participating in leading in the worship are committed to this. It would, in, in our church, it would be like saying Jonathan and Peter and uh, Beth Ann and Spencer and Gary and, and sometimes Aaron uh, they are all committed to this. These people lead in the worship. Uh, they functionally are going to be participating in the temple structure. Second, it says those that separated themselves from the people of the land. That is not a reference to the Jews. That is a reference to the people who have been of the surrounding tribes and regions, uh, from the Assyrians to the leftover Canaanites still in the land. Uh, there were a number of different tribes that were supposed to have been wiped out, people groups that were never wiped out but they've come to the point that they said we believe the one true god uh, they they were moabites who who had come forward and they said we believe now in this one true god and so he's saying everybody the only people that are here in this moment are true believers this isn't a, a, about an ethnic racial moment then it's about belief it's about heart commitment and in this moment in these moments we're beginning to see the foundations 
of what the people and the community is of the new covenant, which is the church of Christ. And so it's, it's determined by belief. It's not just, hey, I want to be there, I like being there, but do you believe? It's not based upon, are, are you a child of Abraham or not? No, do you believe? New Testament's going to tell us all those who believe are by faith children of Abraham. These are God's people. Third, it marks out wives and sons and daughters, which demonstrates entire family groups buying into this commitment, not just husbands and dads. It's everybody. These people that are there, it's entire groups of, of, of families, and we all own this. We're all in this together. Now, interestingly, at the end, it eliminates a group. All who have knowledge and understanding. And in doing that, it eliminates small children. Now, is that because children don't matter? Obviously not. Is that because children can't believe? Obviously not. But it's a recognition that the ones who are making this covenant have the agency, the personal agency, the personal autonomy to own their moral decisions. We live in a culture that understands that to this very day. Uh, if you do some things, you, can, you cannot be charged as an adult if you're under the age of 18. There's crimes you can commit and you're charged as a juvenile. There, there's the vast majority of crimes, even if you're charged and found guilty as a juvenile, that those, those records are sealed and hidden. We recognize that uh, you shouldn't be able to get married until you're of a certain age. We recognize that you shouldn't uh, be able to join the military until you're of a certain age. We recognize you shouldn't be able to vote until you're of a certain age. You can't get a tattoo until you're of a certain age. You, you, can't, you can't participate in lot. You can't drive to your service. We understand the necessity of maturity mentally and for you to have personal agency to own with responsibility your moral decisions. So these guys are recognizing, look, if you're going to stand in front of God at the temple complex and say, we're making a covenant with you, God, and he makes, they make the phrase there that they focus even in on entering into a curse, We'll talk about that at the end of the sermon. But it basically is it's a way of saying, God, if we break this covenant, kill us. We're recognizing we're not going to make uh, small children who maybe their frontal lobe isn't fully formed. Uh, they, they're not ready to own that level of moral agency. That doesn't mean that they don't believe in God, but we're not, I'm not going to make my small child here commit God, strike me dead. We want to make sure that they come to that on their own. This is telling you something that they were understanding about God's people. What they're understanding is this, to follow God is serious. Simply being in the presence of the word doesn't mean you follow God. Simply hearing the word doesn't mean you're committed to it. Simply knowing the songs, knowing the books of the Bible, knowing memory verses, reciting the Romans road, following a catechism, doesn't mean you know and own who God is in your life. And they're saying we want to make sure you understand the importance of all of that and all that that means. Not everyone who's confronted with their sin will respond with repentance. Not everyone who sees the one true God will decide to follow in faith. Now, this is really, really important, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm resting here for a moment, because if you don't understand that, if we can't come to that understanding this morning, then the rest of this chapter very well may read like legalism to you. Rules to follow. 
and they're not. It's not intended for it to be, okay, if I'm going to be part of this community, here's all the written rules that I've got, boxes I've got to tick off to make sure that I'm doing everything right, and so I look right, and I sound right, and I belong, and, and so that's how I know I'm in. Instead, it's that I believe and I love God because God has first loved me. And because of that, out of the outflow of this love and this affection, now I'm going to behave in certain ways. Those are two very different things. Very, very different things. My family and I have been watching a show on Hulu. Uh, it was filmed like back in 2016, 27. It's called The Selection. I'm curious. Any of you ever seen this show? It's crazy. They get 30 people, civilians, who agree to go through a question mark period of time to be trained by special forces guys. I don't know if you know this about special forces guys, but rangers and, and Navy SEALs have no chill. And they bring the, and they just beat on these people. Like, it's unbelievable. These are civilians. They, like, they didn't sign up for military service. They've got them out there doing log PT where they got this massive 500-pound log they're trying to do sit-ups with. They've got them doing um, surf torture. They got them in 50-degree Pacific Ocean water uh, just about come. They do, they do drown proofing with them. Drown proofing is when they tie your hands behind your back, they tie your feet together, they drop you in a nine-foot pool, and you've got to bob for five minutes. Uh, as one of the guys says, it has nothing to do with being a good swimmer. It has to do with being comfortable in the water. And by that, it means that you're okay if you black out. They call it shallow drowning. They said, you're, you're not going to let you die. We'll just drag you out, pump the water out of your lungs, and you can try again. Like, what? I mean, you watch these people, and they're just, they're out there running 100 and some degree weather. Why? Why? Like, it's just, it's, it's miserable. They get mad on them. Go get wet and sandy. They dunk through a, a tank and then they roll around in the sand and then they're doing sit-ups and push-ups and burpees. You can just imagine the, the, that'd be like somebody scrubbing your whole body with sandpaper. Well, it's pretty cool and, and I'm not going to spoil it because it's worth your time, worth your watch. It's, it's fascinating. You get to the end, not, a, spoiler alert this way, not all 30 make it to the end. Shocking. One dude quits like 10 minutes in. He's like, I'm done. I got an old wrestling injury. I'm done. They're like, yeah, see ya. Get out of here, right? These guys that make it to the end, are they Navy SEALs or Rangers? No, they're not. They've done some of the stuff. They've ticked some of the boxes. But they haven't given their life to a system. And the guys talk about how at the core it's sacrifice. That that's, they haven't done that. You can spend your whole life doing this. Ticking the boxes. I read my Bible. I sat through endless sermons. I sang the songs. I dressed right. I looked right. Whatever your little system, whatever you think the rules, you can tick all the boxes and never know him. Ticking the boxes doesn't get you in. <laughs> we could all be convinced that you are. You could even think you are, Jesus says in Matthew 7. And at that day will not many say, have I not done this and this and this, God? Aren't I in? Depart from me, I never knew you. These people are understanding the relational importance that must drive the things we do. 
That's the point they're making. That's what's so important about verse 28. It's going to ultimately lead us to this key truth this morning. Being committed to God always comes out of our lives in practical ways. It's common when a person is paroled, they're given a set of responsibilities and obligations. Things like go get a job, have a safe living arrangement, don't associate with past criminal companions, stay clean and sober. Check in with your parole officer. If you violate these things, your parole can get violated and you can be sent back to prison. We, there's a structure to their lives. We're saying you're, you're a criminal and so if you want to bring, come back into society, here's the things you have to do to be a part of society. They are bound by law to do these things. What's interesting about that is none of those things are any different than what every responsible citizen ought to be doing anyway. Get a job, find a place to live, stay clean and sober, and don't hang out with a bunch of criminals. Hello, welcome to the real world. Adulting 101. And so we're having to say, do this by law. There's one kind of people that do it by law. There's another kind of people that just do it because that's what I'm doing with my life. Now here's what's fascinating. How do you know why they're doing what they're doing? I'll tell you. See what they do when the parole's over. Take away the demand and see what they do then. You want to really know what a child believes? How do they live when they leave your home? That's not terrifying at all for a parent of a 17, 15, and 13-year-old. But you take away the demand. Why do we do the things that we do? Is it because of the law? Is it because of rules? Is it even because of, and I don't even think habits are bad, but is it because of habit patterns or is it out of some kind of deeper heart affection where I'm motivated by love? And, and what this chapter is laying out for us is being committed to God will always, though, come out of your life in practical ways. And so there are three ways we can look at it. We're, we're a little short on time this morning. I will try not to talk faster, which would be my tendency, right? Um, but to just walk carefully and make sure we get what we, what we need to get this morning. So let me, let me walk us through it in three ways this morning. First one, first one is invest in your relationships. Invest in your relationships. So this is a practical way. I'm committed to God. It's going to come out in a practical way. Being committed to God will come out practically in the way you do relationships. We can see their example and then apply it to our lives. So if you look back down your Bibles, look at verse 30. First thing they, they point out then is this. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. This is not, we're going to avoid shotgun weddings. This has everything to do with them saying we're not going to intermarry. Uh, we're, we're not, and, and so the, it's, it's one of those moments, it's like American Christianity has been so messed up for so long. Like I always feel these barriers where I've got to walk us through things because frankly we've got a couple hundred years of really bad theology that linger. This ain't about whites marrying whites and blacks marrying blacks and stay with your ethnicity. That's ungodly and satanic. That's not what this is about. How do I know that? Look at the lineage of Jesus. There is a Moabitess that's in his lineage. Her name is Ruth. Like, like she believes, she comes. 
She, she believes in the one true God. She marries, and she's in the line of Christ. If God was so passionate about you sticking with your race, why does he have that in the line? No. Um, or how about when, I love my, one of my favorites, Moses marries a Cushite. Do you know where Cush is? Sudan. It's the Sudan. The last time I checked, a Sudanese woman <laughs> don't look anything like a European woman and for sure doesn't look like a Jew. Moses marries her. His sister and brother get wound up about it. God strikes them with a disease that it's, it's a God, I love the irony of God. It's just unbelievable. Uh, it's commonly translated as leprosy. It's actually not leprosy. If you look at the Hebrew word, it was a wasting skin disease that, get this, turned your skin uber white and flaked off. <laughs> it's, it's like, there's no escape. It's like God said, oh, you worried about color? You don't like her blackness and you're proud of whatever your whiteness is? We're going to make you super white then. How you feel about that? I love it. I love it. It's, it's, like, it's like the perfect, you can't, like, you can't make this stuff up. It's just amazing. Like, this is not about racial and ethnicity. That's, that's not what it's about. It's about do you believe or not? And so already in verse 20, said, all those from the surrounding lands who believed, come on in. What they're saying is we're not going to do idolatry. That's what they're saying. We are not going to involve ourselves in the kind of marriages that Solomon had engaged in, where he marries all these women who, who are from other lands, but primarily the problem is because they still worship the gods of those lands. And so eventually now they're raising their children who, to worship the gods of these lands. They're going secretly to worship the gods of these lands, and they, there's fertility rights. There are sacrifice of children rights that are going on. Like there are mass sexual orgies that took place four times a year like and and so the husband like we, we live in a culture how many husbands like for their wives to be mad at them correct answer ain't nobody like <laughs> you like to get fussed i don't like to get fussed nobody wants to get fussed at one of the hardest things to do as a leader and it's not about male men husband and wife at this point because it's hard the other direction from a wife to her husband one of the hardest things to do is like none of us want conflict wives don't run around saying what fight can i pick today like right like, like it's like well how can i make people mad and how do I, so you want to we're all by nature conflict avoiders and particularly in our marriages we don't want a lot of fights we don't want a lot of conflicts and so we'll easily come to a place where it's like you do you i'll do me and it's okay let's just agree to disagree we don't need to make this an issue and so eventually, eventually, there would be this erosion in the home, in the marriage, and idolatry to come in either way. And they recognize it's either way. This isn't male or female. That's either way. If one of the spouses is falling an idol and you're falling to God, it's just not going to work. So they're saying we're not going to do this. We are going to govern our relationships in a way. Hear me now. This is big. We're going to govern our relationships in a way that points me closer to Jesus instead of pulling me from him. That's what it is. And I'm not going to engage in relationships that are actively going to pull me further away from Christ. They make this about intimate relationships. This is important because many of us grew up in a culture that said, oh, the best possible way then for you to never be drawn to idolatry is don't spend any time with lost people. And so Paul writes the book of Romans to help us understand this. In Galatians and Ephesians, no, go love and spend time with lost people. 
but love them, don't need them. Right? There's a radical difference. The fear of man is I need you more than I love you, so I want to kowtow and cater to you. If I love you more than I need you, there's going to be things we can do together and things we can't. Things we're going to be able to enjoy and things we won't. But I don't need your approval. But I'm just trying to spend time with you and I love you. And I love you because I love you. It's not even I love you. Like the reality is this, every relationship we have with a lost person, yes, at the core we would want them and should want them to know the gospel and to know Jesus. But that's also not the end all and be all of my relationship with them. I want to love them just because I love them and spend time with them because they're my friend. Like, and the funny thing to me is I really don't even think that should be that hard to understand, right? Because we would do that with your children are not born saved, right? So is it like the only thing you ever do with your kid is read Bible stories to them? Well, you don't believe yet. Go play with your own blocks. What? It's not the, like at the central of it, you love Jesus, you want them to know the gospel, but even if they never come to know, are you just going to cut off relationship with them? So this is never about spending time with other people. It's about, is my heart going to be pulled to idolatry? That was why the law was there. It had nothing to do with race, had nothing to do with, with runaway from lost people. It had everything to do with your heart being engaged with loving God. That's at the core. That's what it always was. That's what it was always going to be. So for you and I, how do we apply that? If, it's gonna, if we are committed to God, it's going to come out in how we do relationships. Worship God alone. I'm not going to worship other people. I'm not going to worship what they mean to me. It's going to be costly. We could for sure apply it to marriage. Uh, the New Testament is clear. Don't marry unbelievers. 1 Corinthians 7, 2 Corinthians 6. At the same time, if you're a believer and you find yourself married to someone who doesn't know Christ, the Bible says, don't leave them. <laughs> don't do that. God may actually use even your presence in their life to lead them to Christ. But I think the application of this is so much bigger than that. I actually want to begin with this premise. The biggest threat to my soul worshiping idols is my own heart. I love how John Calvin put it. My heart is an idol factory. The biggest threat to me giving into idolatry is not other people. It's me. On top of that, I have my enemy, Satan. He's whispering to me constantly of how much better my life could be here if I worship something other than God or worship something right alongside God. You see, for the Christian, it's not let me replace God with this. It's more, God's not enough, let me just add to God this. It's fascinating if you travel, at, le at least where I've been in um, some Asian cultures, when they dress up an idol, it's, it's weird and fascinating. It's like they know that it looks ugly. So they'll paint it and put gold on it and dress it all up and... It's like I want it to look alive or I want it to be engaging. I want it to have some aesthetic appeal to it. And I think the reality is lots of times for Christians, we want to do the same thing with God. Like it feels like following God is hard for us and it feels like it's difficult for us because sometimes it is and we're fighting against our flesh. And so we want to add something to God to make it a little bit more appealing. So I'm going to worship something with God. I, you know, God is wonderful and great. And you know what would really draw more lost people to Jesus is if, if saved people were rich. 
So I'm going to worship God and money. You know what would really draw people to Jesus is if they saw that all the people that follow Jesus get whatever their heart desires. So I'm going to follow my heart's desire with Jesus. I'm going to add to Jesus. I'm going to, I'm going to idol worship. I'm going to become an idolater. God is not interested in, he is on a one-person throne. Have you ever been around people that don't understand personal space? Right? I was waiting for a flight one time, um, and I'm, I'm sitting in the waiting area, and he was in Atlanta, it was a transfer or whatever, and um, it was a space, and it was like all these seats, lots of seats, lots of seats. So I like went and sat over in one like corner off to the side, and there was probably, I don't know, I, I mean, there had to be 30, 40 seats around me open. Nobody around me. It was wonderful. <laughs> like, just, it, it ain't about male or female, but it was some lady. And she was having a dispute with her credit card company. I know that because she had her phone on speakerphone holding it like this. And she, like, sat right next to me. I mean, she was in my business. And as my wife makes fun of me, because sometimes my Baltimore accent, she was up on me. And I remember I just was like, all this area why do you got to be on me i have no idea you ever been with people like that you go sit down at a lunch spot somebody's going right next to you we went out to dinner last night um they, they was about to put us at a table right next to people there was all these empty tables my wife was like can we just like one table can we just go and the waitress kind of gave one of those like we're being so difficult I mean, it was like there was plenty of space. Like there was no, it's like I just want my, God is on a one-seat throne. He's not interested in you trying to shimmy in there with him or stick whatever else it is there with him that you want to worship. And one of the things we do this is in our relationships. We want to engage with people that just make us feel better we want to worship our idols with others, whatever your idol is. I think that's a negative side. I just want, though, to maybe even flip it a little bit here and apply it in a positive sense. Can I encourage you to chase the kind of relationships that push you to Jesus? Can I encourage you to make time in your schedule for the people that help you to love God and others more? Can I encourage you to proactively seek people who help to encourage your heart in faith and following? I grew up in a culture where it felt like everything was cut this out of your life. And, and so the problem, though, is if you cut it all out, sometimes you're left with, what do I add in? And as the older I've gotten, the more I've realized is the more I add in good stuff, the less time I have to spend worried about what I'm cutting out, it just gets shoved out on all its own. It becomes real convenient. I ain't got time for that because I'm focused on this over here. So can I encourage you, who is it in your life that encourages you to love God and others, that encourages you to do, to do good works, to push you to do good works, intentionally pursue your relationships in a way that increase your love of Jesus? There's no better remedy for idolatry than a deep love of Christ. When your belly is full of Jesus, you don't have space 
to consume idolatry. God knows we need others in our lives. They help us to grow in our love of him. I love Jesus more when I hear and see him at work in you. I love Jesus more when I hear and see of him using your gifts that he's given you coming out of you. I love Jesus more when I hear of how he has blessed you, encouraged you, given you hope, given you strength for the journey. I love Jesus more when I see you growing and changing. He gives me courage and hope that I can grow and change. I love Jesus more because he's brought you into my life. Is that the way you see people? It should be. Being committed to God always comes out in practical ways. It's not just relationships. Invest your time. Invest your time. You can look back down here, see verse 31, see where they go. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. We will forgo the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. This is fascinating. The Jews had given up Sabbath day worship and Sabbath year observance and the Jubilee year. Some, I just threw some words out there. Some of you are like, I'm not totally sure I understand what that means. Great. Um, six days, God worked. Seventh day, he rested. He then declared that or established that as a Sabbath day, a day of rest. So when the Mosaic law came, he mandated in the law the Sabbath day was to be a day of rest, particularly a day for them to gather as a community, for them to gather to worship, for them to gather to encourage one another. There's your Sabbath day. Now, the Pharisees took it to extremes. And so on the Sabbath day, God said, don't work. The Pharisees came along and said, so you can only take this many steps. God said, don't, don't make bread and do all this work. He's trying to help women out. It's like everybody gets a Sabbath day, but mom on, on Sunday afternoon lunches, right? And so under the Mosaic law, it was like, don't even do this. And so that's, then you fast forward and they said, well, you can't even harvest grain. So when Jesus is walking through the fields, um, taking wheat off the top and crushing it and eating it, the Pharisees are like, you're baking bread. Look, when you go legalistic, you go next level weird. That's just the way it is. You come up with all kinds of rules and regulations. And so the Jews gave that up. Like, what are you smoking, right? Like, who, what, how are you not observing this? And then get this one. Every seventh year, they were supposed to not plant crops at all. They could do some weeding just to make sure the field didn't totally go bad, but they were to leave it fallow. Well, we even understand from an agrarian science way that that lets the ground rest and lets it reabsorb nutrients. It's only going to make it yield better harvest. But think of that if you were a farmer and every seven years, you just didn't have to do that kind of work that year. That's an amazing gift. The Jews are like, we're not doing that. We work. And then they had the Jubilee year every 50 years. That's amazing. So they got the seven, seven, sevens. After seven of those, year 49, then year 50 was year Jubilee. You did the same stuff you did on Sabbath year, except you also added in a couple of key provisions. Number one, all Jewish slaves went free. All indentured servants went free. And all the land that had been mortgaged or put into debt went back to its original owners and debts were wiped out. I wonder what they were trying to picture when all slaves were made free and everyone was restored to the gifts that God had given them. Sabbath was always about imaging glory in heaven. Where you rest, you do a different kind of work. It's worship work. You spend time with community, with family. The indentured go free. The indebted are made whole. 
And the Jews had refused to do it. And so if we were to ask, why would you stop doing that? Actually, I think the year of Jubilee can help us understand why they stopped doing it. Because the people the Sabbath hurts, get this now, are the powerful. And they didn't want to give up their power or their wealth or their money. It was so known, and you just think about this, the highway robbery of this, that it was written into the law that you were to structure this out. And this makes sense. So say you were in debt, say it's year 45, you need to sell your land, mortgage your land to somebody so that your family has money. Well, they know in five years they're going to give it back to you. So what kind of rate do you think you're going to get? You're not going to get a great rate on it. But what if it's year two, and you got another 48 years before it's going to happen, you're going to get a great rate on it. So think about this then. You're a really wealthy guy. You've given them this great rate, this, or you've given them this pitiful rate at year 45. Year 50 is rolling around. How inclined are you to give it back? Not at all. They viewed Sabbath as costing them instead of giving to them. And now they're saying, no, we're not going to do that anymore. A few months ago, I had this moment where I was incredibly convicted. And this was the thought I had. I was doing a prayer walk up in um, Virginia. Went to this little park and it had this circle of stones and you, it's designed, you can actually do like a prayer walk. And so you walk around the circle and you're praying and I was praying, I was thinking, just meditating on God, thinking through some things. And I, I had this thought, do I rest like God or do I rest like an idolater? What do I mean by that? Does God need to rest? Last time I checked, he would not need to rest. In other words, he rested out of a volitional choice, not because he had to. Do you know when I tend to rest? Only when I felt like I had to. Just like the Jews. I don't want Sabbath. Sabbath isn't a gift to me. Sabbath rest is a pain. And I started just to be convicted in my heart to realize I treat some of God's gifts like a burden rather than a kindness. Necessity is not what drove him, but a kind gift to us. We see it play out when Jesus famously responds to the Pharisees, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The kindness of God to tell us, I want you to have a routine rhythm of rest, feels like an interruption into our ambitious lives. Instead of a healthy rhythm of good rest, I wonder how many of you are like me, you live red line. Uh, that little tachometer in your car, red line. You live red line to the point of collapse. And you medicate your way through your unhealthy ways of redlining with various distractions, chemicals, whatever. The whole time being convinced, maybe you like me, that God is so happy with me because of how ambitious and industrious I am. As though God is sitting on his throne and for you to have a regular rhythm of rest that he decreed, he gave, and he imaged for us that somebody's going to look at that lazy person. No, I'm convinced that our Western culture is idolatrous over things like ambition and wealth 
and money and things and stuff. And to get that, you go and 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 you go. And we run red line and then we take a week and then we get right back to it again. And he said, I'm God and this is what you need. It's not what he thinks you need, it's what he knows we need. You need a weekly rhythm of stopping what you're doing and doing something else. Now, I'm not a Sabbatarian. What does that mean? I'm not a legalist on this. You'll never hear me say, don't wash your car on Sunday. I very well might wash my van this afternoon. It is filthy. It's nasty. It's grossing me out. You never hear me say, don't cut your grass. on." That's, that's law. But when I look and see what the Sabbath was intended to be, what was it intended to be? It was intended to be a time and a space where it's different kind of work. It's worship work. So let me go spend time with people who love Jesus. Let me spend time doing something different, engaging mentally different, engaging spiritually different. Let me go engage with my pillow for a nap. And I'm not going to feel guilty about it because it's got... I'm going to take... Steve gives all these applications and sermons. I don't even know when I'm going to have time to do it. He talked about, what, how would I tell my story in three minutes? I'm not even sure. Well, how many of you going to figure it Hello? The Sabbath resting? Spending, go get a cup of coffee, sit on your porch swing. I mean, today's only going to be in the low 90s instead of like 115. Put a fan on you, get a slushy from 7-Eleven. I don't care. Go take a walk. Go, go enjoy the outside if you can stand the heat. Go swimming. Call somebody you haven't talked to in a long time and just talk to them about how good Jesus is to you. Meditate on him. Engage with him. It is a gift to us designed to remind us, get this now, this world is not our home. That's what the Sabbath was about. It was to point our hearts to heaven. And so I can actually put it this way. Instead of giving, there's no rules. There's no, what could you do today that would help point your heart to heaven? Do you know what some, I know, I know beyond a shadow of doubt what some moms would tell me. I love cooking a meal for my family and spending time with them. It reminds me of God's kind gifts. Great! Then enjoy doing that and do it. And set things to the side. And create a regular rhythm of your life this way. We need mental and spiritual respite from the race of life. And we need it weekly. There was one more. Time is gone. Invest your resources. There's sacrificial support. It goes from verses 32 to 39. We take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly. A third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things. They go on, they go all the way down, and basically what they're doing is they're once again taking responsibility to provide for the things of the temple. It's actually summed up in the very last sentence of the chapter. Go to the very last sentence, last verse says this, we will not neglect the house of our God. Up until this point, the Persian kings had been providing the money and the resources to run the temple. They said, no, we're going to do it. These are not wealthy people. There are some wealthy there, but you remember from chapters ago how lots of them that were involved in this, that were really invested, they were giving lots, and they were, they were farmers, and they were indebted now, and they didn't know what to do. These guys are saying, we are going to be committed to this. We are going to use our resources 
to demonstrate we are committed to the worship of God. The focus of the commitment, nine times in eight verses, it says, uses these words, house of God or house of the Lord or God's house. They didn't see this primarily as supporting the Levites, although this is what the Levites lived off of. They didn't see this primarily as supporting the priests, although it's what the priests support, lived off of. They saw this primarily as how can we advance God's kingdom? And we're going to sacrifice for it, and we're going to commit to doing it. The temple was where they were to experience the presence of God. The temple was where they were to experience the community of God's people. The temple was where they were to see and witness and experience God's forgiveness on the day of atonement, Yom Kippur. And they said, we want to support this. We want this to be real. This is, it matters to us. We're going to prioritize this. It was a commitment to use physical resources as an expression of their deep affection for God. Jesus picks up on this. Paul picks up on it. How do you invest your resources? How do you invest your money? Jesus says, invest your physical resources for eternal gains. That's what he's saying. Don't lay up treasure on earth, but treasures in heaven. Process through. Think about when you look at your resources. And so some of them, it's food. Some of it's money. It's, it's the things I can use. How can I use my stuff, my house, my car, my time even, my, my, my skills, my abilities, my tools, my money, my food, my baking? How can I use my sense of humor? How can I use the things God has given me to advance his kingdom and to bless other people? It's so critical because he points again to the reality that comes out of a heart that knows him. No one can serve two masters. Matthew 6, 24. He will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. My time is done. I want to remind us this morning that being committed to God will come out in practical ways. Now, I've tried this morning for you to understand the reality this isn't about rules. It's about heart. I point you to one last truth because I want you to leave with that. If you go all the way back, do you remember what they say? Verse 29, they join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse in an oath to walk in God's law. Why do they use this language of a curse? Way back in Nehemiah 5, when they made this commitment to take care of the poor, they made an oath, and Nehemiah took his clothes and he shook them, and he said, and may this curse be upon you. May God shake you out of his garment like I shake this dust out. They were living under the old covenant where they had this understanding that if you obey God, you're in. If you disobey God, you're out. What most of them didn't understand was you obey God because you're already in. That's who's in. Who are Abraham's true children? The ones who believe by faith. This was dark to them yet. It was a shadow. God was slowly unfolding the truth of the gospel. We come to the New Testament. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. 
How can you tell that the paroled prisoner is actually a functional member of society, driven for theirs and their community's good? How can you tell? Take away the parole obligations and see what they do. Why is it so many people have grown up in church that have been preached law? Don't cut your grass on Sunday. Don't wash your car on Sunday. Always dress this way. Here's the Sunday school answer for this. Here's the answer for that. Do this. Do that. Do the other. Serve this way. Serve this way. And you preach to them grace and you preach to them the reality is you're not actually under the law. And all of a sudden they ain't church anymore. And they're real unfaithful. And they don't serve sacrificially. They don't give faithfully. Why, why is that? Because you've taken away the law. God is not interested in us being driven by rules and regulations, folks. He's not. You're not actually, you don't want that in every, any relationship of your life, do you? What if the next wedding marriage ceremony you went to, uh, the minister at the end of the ceremony, before he said, you can, now you can kiss the bride, right? And what if he gave, okay, now here's the list of your rules, and here's the list of your rules. Every anniversary, you're going to give this card. You're going to take out for this dinner. Uh, every 15th day of the month, you're going to do this. Every time you're going to do this, you're going to get up and make her coffee. Uh, you're going to serve him this way. You're going to figure out what his favorite meals are. You're going to limit your work interactions so you make sure you're home. You're going to primarily do this. This is what you're going to do. And here's your rules. What kind of marriage is that? Even if they had a heart to do it all, you think there'd be doubt? Question? But what if there's none of those, but out of just a heart of affection, they love and serve one another? Then it's real, isn't it? Being committed to God will always come out of our lives in practical ways. It's not about rules. It's about a deeper affection and belief. God's not interested in sharing his throne, and I'll be honest with you, I'm not interested in him sharing his throne with anybody else. Because when he sits on the throne, his joy is in me, and my joy is full. Father,